Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Future Cities podcast. My name is Alicia Helmrich, and today I am here with Phil Horton, and we are discussing carbon banking within urban spaces. Phil, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, Alicia. My name is Phil Horton. I am a clinical associate professor at Arizona State University, trained as an architect, and uh, I'm also the co-director of a new center called the Center of Building Innovation, also here at ASU. Pleasure to have you on today. And so we're kind of switching topics this month compared to the topics we've heard the last few months here on the Future Cities podcast. Uh, we've had a strong focus on justice, sustainability, and nature-based solutions, which all have their own tie-ins to today's topics. But we're going to start and just take a step back for some general context we're all aware of climate change as far as our listeners, but what is the role of cities in the built environment when it comes to climate change? Yeah, no, it's a, a great question. Uh, we oftentimes look at some of the largest contributors to climate change being uh, uh, burning fossil fuels for vehicles, which obviously happen in cities, uh, or we look at the role that, say, agriculture or other industries play uh, but our built environment is a huge contributor to climate change. 40% uh, of our greenhouse gas emissions are attributable to the built environment, either in the embodied materials that we use to build or in the life cycle emissions of the things that we build. Uh, it's also a huge contributor to energy consumption. 70 to 75% of human energy consumption uh, happens within the built environment. 30% of water consumption, roughly, and another 30% of the effluent waste that we put into water streams are all attributable to our built environment, uh, largely to the way in which we build. Uh, and obviously, that changes from place to place, different uh, building cultures, uh, but particularly in the developed world, the built environment is a, a huge contributor to climate change. So we hear a lot of different cities, different organizational campuses talking about going carbon neutral. Could you speak to a little bit of what this means and what would be the impact? Would this fix our carbon crisis? Uh, so it's a, a great question. Oftentimes uh, when you hear organizations talking about moving to carbon neutral, they're talking about their operational uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So essentially those things that are happening in the day-to-day -day or year-to-year -year life cycle, uh, either relative to facilities or other operational practices. One reason why this is oftentimes not enough uh, when we're thinking about uh, ways in which we can try to curb anthropogenic climate change is because what's usually not uh, calculated within that carbon neutral declaration is the embodied carbon. So uh, when we think about all of the uh, efforts that go into the built environment, you think about raw material extraction, you think about the manufacturing of, of what gets built all before you start operating a campus, a city, uh, a building. Those things are oftentimes not part of that carbon neutral declaration. You're just trying to bring your operational emissions down to zero. So the issue there is that all of that embodied carbon also has to be uh, factored in. And maybe the more significant issue within that uh, consideration is the factor of time. So once greenhouse gas emissions are in the atmosphere and are contributing to anthropogenic climate change, uh, those things are 
causing harm year over year. So the, the carbon that's already in the atmosphere uh, or the greenhouse gas emissions that are already in the atmosphere are oftentimes not going to be addressed through simply bringing down our operational emissions to zero because we've already got way too many uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere causing the, the warm up and, and the climate change issues that we're facing today. So we need to also then factor in both the embodied carbon as well as uh, strategies for drawing down the excess greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. So while we know it's not a silver bullet to go carbon neutral in our cities or at these different organizations, this is where this idea of carbon capture begins to emerge, right? There's, there's a lot of emerging carbon capture technology or basically technology that captures the carbon dioxide before it's entering that atmosphere. So it doesn't have those long lasting impacts you were just talking about, and this helps mitigate those effects of climate change. There's a number of processes that allow for these technologies to take place from adsorption and adsorption to membrane gas separations. But the bigger questions I think are really around these where these technologies are placed, where they can have the most impact, but also where they make the most economic sense. For instance, it's just easier to deploy carbon capture technology where the price of carbon is high, such as in Europe. Now, the reason for this tangent is that there are some really innovative strategies out there. And one of them happens to be at Arizona State University, for instance, where you're based, where I had just completed my PhD and postdoc as well. There is the first commercial scale mechanical tree. It's based off of research of Dr. Klaus Lochner, who is a sustainable engineer at ASU, hence the location of the mechanical tree. And so we had the opportunity earlier this year to, to see this tree in action. It consists of this really tall metal column and about a five foot diameter disc that will raise up into the air about 33 feet, which is approximately three stories and put out all these different petals. And these petals are what are collecting carbon um, until it's full. In Arizona, it sounds like it takes only about 30 minutes to actually fill up all these petals on this tree. It retracts back into about a nine foot tall canister and the carbon shed. Uh, Dr. Lochner, I believe, is, has stated that his estimate is that these trees are actually a thousand times more efficient at absorbing carbon than a natural tree. And I know we'll get into this a little bit more later in the podcast. The, the real cell pitch of this, just so everybody is aware of I've heard of other mechanical trees. How does ASU have the first mechanical tree? Well, it's it's the commercial scale um, is how they're getting away with that line in particular. It's it's scalable, and this is because it's a more passive solution. It doesn't have blowers and fans, and so this is lowering that cost. And so the goal of Carbon Collect Limited, with whom Dr. Lochner collaborates, is looking to scale this technology to actually create carbon farms where you could capture about a thousand tons of carbon dioxide per day. So for reference, a typical passenger vehicle emits about 4.6 tons of carbon dioxide per year. And so how does this tie back into what we're thinking about for this podcast? Well, the question that really comes next is where does that carbon go after it's collected? So Phil, could you tell us a little bit more about carbon banking? Yeah, so uh, obviously after uh, carbon has been captured, uh, there are a number of different ways in which you might then try to uh, sequester that carbon. 
the idea obviously is you, you want to keep it from going back into the atmosphere. Uh, and ideally, uh, that sequestration would be functional. Uh, it would have some utility, some purpose. So there are, uh, for instance, uh, efforts looking at what happens if we just bury it all underground uh, rather than, than giving it a, a use. And the issue there is there's no uh, sort of cost trade-off for that. So it's difficult to incentivize that type of work. Uh, there are also efforts to uh, put it to use in, say, the beverage industry for carbonation of beverages, which uh, can uh, obviously be clearly functional and, and also be productive in terms of its uh, economic impact. But the idea behind carbon banking is that ideally we are storing carbon uh, with some utility in a location, uh, in, in this particular case, in some sort of a built form uh, for a long period of time uh, so that it's part of a, uh, a functional element, uh, a building system, if you will, uh, but also something that ideally will have a long life cycle. So for instance, uh, if we think about mass timber and the rise in interest in mass timber, obviously trees draw carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, if we are turning those trees into building elements and putting them into buildings that have long life cycles, then those buildings are essentially storing that carbon that was captured by those trees for the life cycle of that building. In the case of uh, a building material like concrete, which is far and away the most utilized building material in the world, uh, both for urban infrastructures as well as for buildings. Uh, theoretically, concrete could store uh, that carbon for a thousand years uh, dur you know, durably. So the idea here again is that we're thinking about the notion of a time factor where we're looking to both uh, recapture or draw down uh, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon from the atmosphere, and then put it to some kind of functional use, and then ideally store it for a long period of time before it has the, the prospect of going back into the atmosphere. This coupled with trying to get to zero, uh, net zero carbon uh, emissions begins to help move us towards uh, a scenario where we can really uh, reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and, and meet some of the climate goals that have been set by uh, some of the, the bodies that have been looking at climate change for decades. Uh, it's important to note here that storing carbon or banking carbon in cities, in buildings, in, in built infrastructure is not a, a cure-all solution in and of itself. We're talking about one component of a larger set of strategies. So ideally, you're uh, drawing enough carbon down out of the atmosphere that it can feed the food and beverage industry. It can be used in, in a number of different industries, but it can also be then stored in the, in the built environment uh, and have some functional value uh, in so doing. So we've initially been framing this conversation around the ability of, say, a city to be net zero. But does this capture technology and storage technology potentially give an opportunity for a city to actually become carbon negative? Or are there any pathways that a city could achieve that? Yeah, so the idea of carbon negative is a, 
an idea that is still very much being sort of borne out. And there are some uh, early projects that are claiming that they will be carbon negative, either as products or as, as uh, built projects or as systems. Uh, in many instances, in order to get to carbon negative, obviously the, the concept is that you are uh, taking more carbon out of the atmosphere than you're putting into the atmosphere. And in doing so, that, that means then that you have to be part of that solution of drawing carbon down from the atmosphere. We know uh, that nature does this. So you talked about the relationship between mechanical trees and, and real trees and the uh, estimation that mechanical trees can be a lot more effective in the amount of carbon they can take out of the atmosphere. Trees are obviously not the only uh, part of uh, natural systems that can uh, take carbon out of the atmosphere. A lot of different plant materials can do this. So how you get to carbon negative, there are, let's say, many different theoretical pathways for how you might do that. Some of that could be that you're uh, planting a number of trees or um, uh, materials like hemp uh, are, are notoriously really good for uh, drawing a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it. Algae is, is uh, very proficient. Uh, in the case of algae, that can theoretically be done without occupying any arable land, whereas trees and, and hemp would require arable land. So uh, there are many different ways in which a, a larger strategy could get to carbon negative. Uh, but in the case of cities, thinking about specifically storing large amounts of carbon, durably storing large amounts of carbon in the built environment, uh, whether that's through materials like mass timber, uh, concrete, or uh, other emerging material technologies that can be carbon negative, uh, there, there is a, a theoretical path for cities to get to carbon negative. Cities, as we know, are, are really complex organisms. There are a lot of different factors uh, relative to uh, emissions, relative to uh, a number of different human behaviors that affect that overall calculus of how much carbon is being emitted to the atmosphere versus how much is being drawn down. Uh, but carbon banking in cities certainly points to one part of a larger strategy that, that could be uh, a path for cities who have a goal of being carbon negative. And it sounds like a lot of these spaces for carbon banking, you've, you've mentioned the structures of the buildings we're in, um, concrete and asphalt for the roads and sidewalks that we're traveling on, the, it's infrastructure that already exists. And so this could be replacing different materials that we're already using. Are there any trade-offs to making carbon capture and storage a more active role in these materials? So, you know, it's interesting, concrete as a material uh, naturally does draw some uh, carbon out of the atmosphere, even without you actively uh, participating in that process. The issue is that with the way that we uh, use concrete, the uh, surface to volume ratio uh, oftentimes is an issue. So it's only within uh, millimeters of the surface of concrete that that natural carbon uh, extraction happens. So uh, you're right that uh, we have a lot of existing concrete. Uh, obviously, the, the purpose here is not to say, let's rip up all the roads, rip up all the sidewalks, tear down all the buildings, bridges, and rebuild everything with carbon negative concrete, 
because obviously that creates a lot of waste. You're going to um, uh, fill landfills with all of that uh, used material, and that material um, is already, uh, you know, its embodied carbon is already uh, done. So uh, because concrete is such a heavily utilized material and, and we think about all the road resurfacing, we think about all of the additional infrastructure that's needed, all new buildings, this is really largely focused on uh, new construction, whether that's civil construction or architectural construction. Uh, in the case of what is existing, we want those things to exist as long as possible so that we're not putting more embodied energy, more embodied carbon into remaking things that, that could have a longer life cycle than already exists. But in the case of, of concrete uh, and asphalt, you have the ability to not just have the surfaces that are uh, in contact with the air uh, drawing carbon but rather to, to put carbon into the matrix of concrete or uh, asphalt in the process of making it so that you have a more comprehensive uh, carbon storage. And there are multiple ways that that could be done. Uh, and there are a number of uh, folks who are actively doing this. Some are already in the act of, of commercializing these things. Others are still very much in, in research phase uh, in many instances, trying to get to market. And there are a number of different uh, tests that have to be done in order to uh, prove that these things can be safe uh, and, and safely used in construction in a number of different places. One of the, the challenges with concrete is that uh, concrete as a material, uh, because of the way in which it's made and because of the fact that it's made uh, everywhere in the world, Concrete in, say, Arizona is different than concrete in, say, Georgia, and certainly different than it is in, say, India, China, uh, or other parts of the world. So one of the, the challenges uh, in terms of scaling the uh, use of concrete as a means of sequestering carbon is that uh, in many instances, you have to prove that it will work uh, in, in different parts of the world for the safety standards and quality standards of that particular location. But you also then have to work to create a, a path to adoption, scalable adoption uh, in the industries in those particular parts of the world. I think one of the, the interesting things here is that because there are multiple ways to address uh, capturing and sequestering carbon in concrete, there are multiple pathways that ideally are going to grow in adoption in parallel. Uh, so for instance, one uh, pathway is to inject carbon in its gas form during the concrete pouring process. So concrete, uh, typically you're mixing water, Portland cement, uh, a, a coarse aggregate and a fine aggregate. Uh, if you're injecting gas into that concrete while it's liquid and you're mixing that in there, uh, you're going to get a, a high degree of saturation within the concrete. Uh, it also has some functional benefits. So it can make a, a stronger concrete. It can make concrete that will cure uh, faster. So there are benefits. Obviously, the one of the challenges is that concrete, especially over the last probably 20, 30 years, 
has become more and more chemically sophisticated. There are a lot of different uh, artificial materials that we use to uh, either make concrete cure more quickly or some in some cases make it cure more slowly uh, to increase its strength, to increase its plasticity. And so in many instances, you're um, promoting the idea of using gaseous carbon in lieu of materials that have had uh, time in the market and that uh, there's a certain amount of confidence in, in how to use it. So a lot of this is about uh, education of the various stakeholders in uh, uh, the specification of concrete, the making of concrete, the installation of concrete, which is probably one of the other things for us to, to talk about in terms of why uh, this is more challenging to do than it is to, to think about or talk about. Uh, so concrete as an industry uh, has a number of different stakeholders, none of whom are sort of end-to-end -end, uh, deliverers of concrete. So you have structural engineers who are designing concrete mixes. You have, in many instances, architects who are specifying concrete as a particular material within a design. You have contractors who are actually pouring the concrete, but you also then have an industry that is uh, gathering all of the materials and whether they're making a ready mix of the concrete or they're supplying the individual components of concrete, uh, each of those stakeholders needs to be sort of engaged in the solution here, which is that we're, we're trying to not only reduce the embodied uh, carbon and embodied energy in concrete, but really move concrete towards being this uh, carbon negative opportunity for durably sequestering carbon for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So thinking of these various stakeholders that you were just listing off, where do you think that starting point of this decision to have carbon banking within, say, concrete, for example, who would that start with? Would that start with a civil engineer who's designing, an urban planner? Would it start with the architect? Is, are the concrete businesses leading this? I guess, who, who is leading this space? Uh, it's a that's a fantastic question. The I think the good news here is there are segments of probably all of these markets who have become uh, interested in this and in many instances are trying to promote better practices. There's one group called the SE twenty fifty group, a group of structural engineers who, uh, in some cases, have uh, worked through the entire process, including then. Uh, building codes in uh, particular locations to really pave the way for here's a specification. We've already gotten this approved with local officials. Uh, here are industry partners who are versed in, in how to actually use these processes uh, and are then promoting to other uh, engineers and, and to others engaged in the built environment the alternative that this provides, as well as the, the reasons why it's so important. Uh, there are some various industry partners who are engaged. Uh, there's a, a company based out of Nova Scotia called Carbon Cure that are probably uh, within the continent of North America, uh, the most engaged in the uh, injection of gaseous carbon into the, the matrix of carbon before it cures. And uh, they have begun to reach out to multiple segments of uh, regions of the continent to try to work with 
industry partners, as well as to have educational outreach efforts with architects, civil engineers, structural engineers to just educate the community. Uh, there are uh, some interesting efforts happening in Norway uh, in a consortium that includes architects, engineers, uh, industry partners, and the Norwegian federal government to make a product that they're calling uh, BioCrete uh, using biochar as a pozzolan material, as a material that affects the, the behavior, the, the plastic behavior of concrete before it cures. Uh, and are connecting that to um, a pyrolysis plant that's an energy plant. So you have a, an energy plant that is producing energy for uh, a region of Norway. Uh, that energy is coming from a, a slow burning process of organic wastes. And then the byproduct of that, this, this biochar, which is sort of pure functional carbon, is then being mixed into concrete. Uh, they haven't gone through the entire process. That isn't fully, uh, at least last I looked, it isn't fully uh, sort of market adoptable as a process yet, but you have multiple stakeholders working together to really break down all of the barriers and then work towards a kind of mass adoption. So I, I think the, the good news is it's not a linear process. You don't have to wait for one agent to um, fully adopt before folks who are, let's say, downstream uh, within the building process can then uh, also adopt. Uh, but there are a lot of barriers as well. So as much as you have a number of different uh, actors who are engaged in, in various, let's say, uh, moments within the value chain of concrete uh, working to try to make this uh, happen, again, you have uh, testing that has to happen to prove that the strength of the concrete isn't going to be affected in a way that creates life safety issues. Uh, you have uh, various challenges relative to supply chain. One thing about uh, Carbon Cure, if we go back to, to Carbon Cure for a moment, we're doing really uh, fantastic work and, and uh, I certainly would encourage folks to, to look into Carbon Cure as a, as a um, company that is really behaving in a uh, ideal way within the built environment. One of the issues there is that uh, in most instances, the gaseous carbon that they're putting into concrete, uh, they're not dictating the source of the, the carbon in gas form. So in some cases, uh, you're competing with, say, the food and beverage industry who are looking to procure carbon in gas form to make sodas, beer, other uh, carbonated beverages. And in those instances, uh, we know that there are already supply issues. So coming back to what you were talking about relative to mechanical trees or other technologies for carbon capture, uh, direct capture adjacent to the making of concrete uh, could potentially show great benefit because rather than paying increasingly high prices uh, and having increasingly long lead times uh, within a supply chain where uh, access to gaseous carbon uh, is to, to CO2 is uh, a challenge. You could be essentially producing your own uh, carbon at the site in which you're going to be using it, which not only then uh, allows you to control more of that supply chain, 
but it obviously also then takes out the logistics of having to truck carbon from one site to another. Uh, so you're now also reducing the amount of emissions that are associated with the uh, procurement of your carbon. Uh, one of the big challenges is that uh, these direct air capture uh, technologies are still relatively novel. Uh, as you've said, they're, they're being commercialized, uh, but there's not enough of a market penetration yet that the uh, math really makes clear and confident sense for a lot of smaller uh, industries. So we're, we're in the process of seeing uh, an adoption cycle that will naturally take time. Uh, so in the meantime, how you're procuring uh, the carbon that you're going to put into uh, concrete is uh, still in question. One, one thing I, I might also add here, so we've, we've talked about injecting carbon in, in gas form into the, the concrete mix uh, before it's cured. We've talked about uh, biochar as a kind of positive material or as a, what's oftentimes referred to as a supplementary cementitious material. I'm, I'm not a material scientist or a, a materials engineer. I'm, I'm trained as an architect, obviously. So I'll try to say this in the, in the plainest terms. The cement, the Portland cement in concrete is often the greatest defender in, in terms of the embodied carbon in concrete. And it's because uh, in order to make Portland cement, you're essentially baking uh, a limestone, a calcinate material uh, at a really high temperature uh, in an oven. And in doing so, consuming a ton of energy and emitting carbon into the atmosphere in that production process but there are a number of supplementary cementitious materials and, and a growing number of, of these materials and a, and a growing body of knowledge about how they can be used to reduce the amount of Portland cement that goes into concrete. But there's also uh, at least one other opportunity for trying to sequester carbon within concrete beyond the either injecting it directly into the mix or uh, using SCMs or supplemental cementitious materials. Uh, another option is to have carbon sequestered within some of the admixtures that go into concrete. So oftentimes there are liquid admixtures that are being added to concrete, again, for the process of either uh, increasing the strength of concrete, increasing the plasticity of concrete, having the concrete self-level, or in some cases, making sure that you don't get too much air entrained in concrete, or in some cases, trying to entrain more air in concrete to, to lighten uh, the concrete uh, in terms of its overall weight. Lots of different types of, again, admixtures that are usually chemical admixtures, many of which have been in uh, marketed use for decades now. But one of the opportunities, it's also in early exploration is could those liquid admixtures have uh, captured carbon in them as a kind of brine, if you will. And, and then those things are being put into concrete that ideally has a life cycle of hundreds, if not a thousand years of, of life. So lots of different ways uh, that this could be done. And, and again, I think it's important. We're, we're talking a lot about concrete. It is the, the topic that I think is, is sort of the most important emerging topic. We also know that in many instances, we're seeing more and more things built with mass timber, mass timber obviously coming from trees that are capturing carbon and you're then using those trees to, to have a long life of use. There are other materials in the building industry uh, that also have a lot of potential for being carbon negative. 
and I think going back to then your question about you know who goes first or or what is the process for getting from where we are to where we want to be, uh, the good news here is that a lot of different companies are looking at how might we make alternatives to the building materials that we commonly use that are either going to have less embodied energy and less embodied carbon or ideally be carbon negative in and of themselves. Things like gypsum board uh, or metals, plastics, all, all of the other materials that we use to build the things that uh, we inhabit uh, in, in our cities on a day-to-day -day basis. So one thing I do want to loop back around to, since we have had this focus on nature-based solutions um, throughout this podcast series, is we've, we've mentioned a couple times now where these carbon storage and carbon banking technologies may be more efficient for technological solutions rather than um, nature-based solutions. And so I was wondering what role nature-based solutions or green infrastructures could play with these new durable carbon banks or just in a carbon negative city. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, question. And I'm, I, I should say, even though we're talking quite a bit about concrete or, or man-made materials, uh, I'm a huge proponent of thinking about, you know, are there infrastructures that maybe for the last 50, 100 years have been made as, as gray infrastructures that could be made as green infrastructures? I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. So one, I think that uh, this isn't uh, let's um, fully try to solve the problem with man-made materials and ignore nature. The, I think these are solutions where they, they have to be complementary and, and that creates a lot of complexity about how you model those things and, and uh, uh, monitor your outcomes. Uh, but I think it's important that they be uh, coupled together. One of the things though that I think is important for us to also keep in mind is, and it, and it comes back to this conversation about the time factor and, and what happens once greenhouse gas emissions are already in the atmosphere and, and how they create compound problems over the amount of time that they're in the atmosphere. Uh, one of the challenges with a lot of green infrastructures is that uh, they don't necessarily, in, in some instances, provide a, dur a, a durable uh, solution to storing carbon. So for instance, if we go back to the idea of hemp being really uh, proficient at drawing carbon out of the atmosphere, if you're cutting that hemp down within a, a certain period of its growth time and a large amount of that is then going to waste, as it breaks down, as it rots, it's then going to re-emit uh, carbon into the atmosphere. If you're burning it, it's obviously then going to put that back into the atmosphere. In many instances, if we also have to then think about with those green infrastructures, what is that life cycle? How do we optimize or maximize that life cycle? What are the potential vulnerabilities of that? And, and I think that that is important, uh, more important today than, than probably ever before. If we look at wildfires, certainly across the American West, uh, but, but also wildfires, the increase in uh, wildfires globally, you look at Australia, uh, or even increasingly their wildfires, but, but fires within cities, you know, you look at what happened in say London this summer where you had, you know, lawns that were dry, that, that were catching fire in, in parts of London. The issue, I think, also uh, arises around this question of how do we protect those green infrastructures? 
to make sure that they're not going to uh, burn and then re-emit carbon into the atmosphere. So I, I, I think it's, it's important that we're both looking at hybrid uh, strategies for how do we reduce carbon emissions, uh, pairing natural systems with man-made solutions, but also then thinking about what are the vulnerabilities of those natural systems in an environment where the climate is changing. Uh, in some cases, that could be, are we picking a different species of uh, plant materials in certain cities, recognizing that as the temperature changes and as risks for things like wildfires are increasing, that we might need to uh, use plant materials that while they might not historically be ideally suited for that particular application, looking at the next 50 years, 100 years of climate change, we're essentially planning for the worst. And in the cases of things like algae or grasses or hemp or things that have a, a fast growing cycle that will absorb a lot of carbon in a relatively short life cycle, how do we try to keep that, store that from either rotting and, and emitting uh, carbon back into the atmosphere or, or being burned uh, and emitting carbon back into the atmosphere. The, the goal here, obviously, is we want to store it durably for a long, long period of time. At the same time, we're bringing down emissions with the aim being that collectively we're able to kind of reverse this really dangerous trend that we're on. Thank you, Phil. So today we've talked about how can cities become carbon banks? How can they utilize the infrastructure that are in place while they're rebuilding, at least for new infrastructures? There's still questions, it sounds, of how this could be integrated for legacy infrastructures, but how at least moving forward, we can begin to be more carbon neutral to potentially carbon negative. As we're getting ready to close out, I do want to check with you if there's anything going on in your research that you would like to promote here in this space. I know you mentioned um, the Carbon Cure Company, so we'll make sure we link that in the description of this episode, but just wanted to provide you a space for anything else before we close out. Yeah, I should say it's probably unfair that I that I singled out one company. There are a number of, of companies uh, globally that are working in parallel on a number of different paths towards carbon neg negative concrete and Maybe I'll, I'll try to get you a, a list so that we can provide multiple uh, links. You did mention uh, that, that Klaus uh, and the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions are at ASU. Uh, there are a number of really fantastic people working uh, with Klaus in that center. Uh, and most recently, I've been in multiple conversations with Justin Flory and Travis Johnson uh, in the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions to look for pathways to partner uh, in research towards some of the really great funding opportunities that are out there right now. Uh, there's one that just closed in October uh, from the US Department of Energy that's looking at uh, how to uh, decarbonize uh, various industries and looking not just at carbon uh, zero, but also uh, trying to get to some semblance of carbon negative uh, where possible. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act has a lot of express uh, goals looking at reducing and sequestering carbon. So at the moment, there are ongoing conversations, not just with Justin and, and Travis in the Center for ne Negative Carbon Emissions, but Ellie Feeney, uh, Shuang Deng, uh, Dong at, at here at ASU are also 
engaged in research for particularly concrete as a uh, means of sequestering carbon and, and as a carbon negative or carbon banking uh, solution, both for infrastructures and for buildings. So uh, my hope is that there will be quite a bit of research that, that moves in that direction uh, over the next year. There are also opportunities working with government agencies, at least within this current trend of trying to improve energy efficiency in the built environment, uh, as well as the, the relationship between the built environment and carbon. Uh, you and I had an opportunity, obviously, to work with the Bureau of Overseas Building Operations uh, in that space. Uh, but within the Inflation Reduction Act, the General Services Administration is expressly written into some of the funding opportunities uh, within the Inflation Reduction Act. And certainly looking at the volume of built space that is attributable to GSA, thinking about them as a, an early adopter and a mass adopter of buildings and infrastructures that are carbon negative. There's a, a great deal of opportunity there. So lots of things that are in uh, pursuit at the moment, and I hope to share more uh, about those in the coming weeks or months. Thank you for sharing all those resources, and we'll be sure to link those as well in the description so somebody maybe just getting into this space has a place to start. And now, Phil, you also took on our challenge of writing a haiku related to this topic. So could you please close out our episode with sharing your poem? Uh, I will. I'm going to start with a caveat in saying that I am certainly not a poet. And uh, uh, I'll just be for full transparency. Alicia and I were modifying the, the haiku right up to the, the point of recording this podcast. Uh, so this is my first time verbalizing it, uh, but with all of that um, insecurity uh, or vulnerability put into the world, I'll, I'll go ahead and start reading it. So the the haiku, I don't, I, I don't even feel confident saying the haiku that I've written uh, because I'm not a, a poet, but the, the haiku uh, that we've come up with for this particular topic goes as follows. Rethinking cities, carbon vaults for centuries, part of the puzzle. Thank you, Phil. We appreciate your vulnerability as well as your haiku. Thanks, Alicia. The Future Cities podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by Natura-based solutions for urban resilience in the Anthropocene, or Natura. To learn more, please visit www.natura-net Dot org. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.